I even tried not putting in. Oh, wow. I think it's because like, I just heard some new upgrades. That might be it. Like I upgraded a new version. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't do it, but it did it automatically. Like right then when I hit the record button, it said, I am now recording. I'm like, okay, that's new. So right, right, right. That could be some of the deal right there. Yeah. So for the, for the podcast, I just use the voice stuff. So, <laughs> okay. But we're, no both, we're both wearing UCLA yeah. stuff. So that's good. Yeah. All right. Hey, you guys, keep it down, please. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, so here we are. Uh, for those of you out there in podcast land, we are um, doing a, a different episode today of Raise the Bar, uh, the Sky High and Fly Jump Camps broadca- uh, podcast um, with Troy Haynes, a uh, former UCLA high jumper. It, it is a, a real treat today. I, um, I bumped oh. a gentleman on the uh, golf range at El Dorado in Long Beach. And uh, we just started talking because he was wearing a UCLA shirt and I was wearing a UCLA shirt. And, um, you know, once we started talking, found out that he'd gone to Long Beach and I went to Long Beach Millican. And when I found out his name, uh, he's Rodney Van Jr. And his dad went to school with me at Millican and it just started this long chain. We ended up hitting balls for <laughs> an hour and a half and, and laughing and talking and having a great time. So, um, uh, Rodney, thanks for joining us here today on Raise the Bar. And um, I just want to, uh, again, say thanks. And um, what a, a great day that was, uh, getting to, to talk to your dad for the first time in, in 40 years, right? So, uh, and it wasn't like, uh, like I hadn't missed a beat. Um, but to everybody out there in uh, the, uh, listening to the podcast, um, this is Rodney's my first Bruin, fellow Bruin on the podcast. I've had Doug Nordquist, who was a Washington state guy that went to the Olympics and, uh, Leo Williams, who went to the Navy and, uh, you know, all these guys are kind of Southern California ish. Um, Leo's out here now. He grew up in Indiana, but, uh, Rodney's my first Bruin. So we're excited to have him here. And, um, we want to start off with, um, uh, having you, if you can, Rodney, give us a little, uh, background. What was your, your high school background in sports? Um, I told everybody in the lead-in that you had gone to Long Beach Poly. So tell us what that was like. And how come you didn't go to Millican when your dad went to Poly? <laughs> well, went- thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Troy. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure. Uh, anytime I could share stories and moments and memories with a fellow Bruin, it's, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. So uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my background, like you said, uh, Long Beach Poly High School, um, ran track, played football, even played a little basketball my uh, freshman year. Uh, but realized that my two uh, sports would be track and football. Yeah. Um, and from there, uh, went on to um, letter three years um, on, on the varsity football team and track team, uh, one state, um, or excuse me, one CIF uh, football and track um, multiple times. So uh, right. it was definitely a pleasure, definitely a great location. Um, yeah. My dad was actually a uh, anomaly. Most of our family actually went to poly, so my dad was the was the um, difference, if you will, or um, wanted to create a different path. Which you know, I think it all worked out for him as well. Um, but for myself, um, it was actually came down to a choice between modern day and poly uh, when I went to high school. Um, so, unfortunately, I chose the right uh, location, staying right. here in Long Beach. Um, from there, um, I earned uh, scholarships in track and football. Um, to multiple schools, uh, but UCLA was always my number one choice. It's uh, the hometown school for myself. Um, it's 
Um, I, I enjoy the colors blue and gold. So uh, ever <laughs> since I was little. So it was just a serious attraction point. And then when that interest came, I got an offer from UCLA. I took a visit there and I wasn't even supposed to commit on junior on junior day. Uh, 2000, I want to say, what's that, 2004, junior day? Um, I wasn't even supposed to commit, but um, I just got this overwhelming feeling and sensation after leaving the Hall of Fame, uh, <laughs> walking out of those doors that I walked right back in and told Carl Durrell that I wanted to commit and I was, I was going to be a Bruin. So, um, and from there, it was uh, four great years, you know what I mean? Uh, up and down with some of our winning and losing totals, but overall great experience, got to meet some great players, great teammates, friendships for life. Um, run into great alumni. And as you know, being a former Bruin, the alumni uh, is strong. You know, it's a family. Um, no matter who's the coach, no matter who's on there, it's definitely a family. So I appreciated that feel. I appreciated that um, horror out there. And I wanted to do something new. All A lot of our poly athletes were going to SE. Um, and it just wasn't the school for me. Um, I wanted to do something, start something on my own. Uh, and, you know, went there with another fellow poly alumni, Mercedes Lewis, Terrence Austin, a couple other guys that um, are poly guys as well. Um, so it was a great experience overall, like I said, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Oh, man, that is such, that's such great info. Um, now, when you, let's back up a little bit, because you covered a lot of ground there. Um, when you were in high school, back in school, I think you told me, did, did you do both? High jump and long jump? Were you long and triple? What'd you do? Well, actually, I was a uh, triple, no, excuse me, a long jumper. Uh, triple jump, my dad uh, protected me from it, so to speak. He wouldn't let me do it because um, <laughs> it kind of beat his knees up a little bit. So he wouldn't let me do it. Um, but I excelled in the long jump um, from the first moment that I touched the, the track. Long jump was my baby. That was the number one thing that I did. And then I worked my way to the track, you know, doing the hundreds to two hundreds, different things like that. Right. But at UC, but at uh, Poly, um, I came onto the scene as a freshman and I believe I jumped 20 foot 11 as a freshman, 20 foot 11, 20, yeah, 20 foot 11 as a freshman um, going through that first year. So solid, you know, uh, after having taken a year off, I took a year off to um, just play basketball, do traveling basketball before I entered high school because I had done track since I was probably like 10 years old. So I wanted to take a year off before I entered high school. And so that was my first time back on the scene and, you know, popped out 2011 for my PR for that season. Um, and then the following year, um, I was called up to varsity um, and led to great times. Um, long jump, my furthest long jump in high school was uh, 23, I think it was 23.5 at Arcadia. Solid. Um, yeah, so solid number. Um, put me in contentions, you know what I'm saying, to be, you know, ranked inside the state, um, going into state meet, different things like that. Um, but just unfortunately had some mishaps um, in the state meet and, uh, Masters meet, as you know, being from the Long Beach area, we have the Masters meet. Not a lot of people know about that Masters meet, and a lot of people get eliminated from that Masters meet. So, um, yeah, it's not easy having another round of, um, you know, basically checks to go through um, and to get through to state and so forth. So, um, but overall, you know, end up being a 400 runner as well, uh, PR'd at about 47.9 in the 400. Um, uh, relay split, my fast was about 46, I want to say about 46.1. Um, you know, when we were in Penn, went to Penn Relays, ran. So great time under the tutelage of Don Norford and several other coaches, you know, just that track program is amazing, has been, and, you know, continues to be uh, definitely a staple of Long Beach uh, polyathletics. So, oh. <clears throat> Well, we were talking to that day on the, the golf range, and I, I brought up um, a, a Long Beach poly and Long Beach um, unified school district great John Atkinson, who's still yes, – coaches basketball there at Poly, and I happened to jump against John 
in high school. He was a year ahead of me. So um, we, we had a, year, a run of five years in a row at um, Millican High School with guys that jumped officially 6'8 or better. But I, wanted, I keep wanting to say 6'10 because my teammate, Dave Wicker, who ended up jumping against John, jumped 6'10 at our league finals. And one of the standards slipped down and the bar stayed on. And they didn't know how to jump. So it was yeah. like, and then from that day on, that was when they were both juniors. So it was him and, and Atkinson against each other. And, you know, the next year I kind of got thrown into the mix, even though neither of them probably knew who I was because I, you know, started jumping well as a junior. And, uh, right. but that was, uh, that was a real eye opener. John was uh, a six, 11 and a half high jumper. I think Bill has the, the uh, best mark in, in the, uh, in the more league ever six six eleven and a half yeah, i still believe he has that at poly as well um, yeah. i don't think anybody's eclipsed that yet he used to go over <laughs> sitting down dude he used, to, he used to go over like this on the arms folded just looking like <laughs> just like he just pop up in the air and just sit there and just sail over it one of the most amazing i don't remember him ever working it just looked like he was just gonna go you know what i gave it everything on the takeoff <laughs> right wild very wild jumper. Um, and he's, he's also going to be the subject. I, I was able actually to, uh, I, I bumped into someone else like yourself that was a, a former Bruin. I can't remember his name right now. He, coaches, oh, he, was, uh, he works with the high jumpers. Um, Jeff, Jeff something. Anyway, he, he had a girl that won CIF this year. Um, my girl came nice. to his. So she beat us at dual meet, the poly low sal dual meet, and then turned around mm-hmm. Yes, at CI finals too. And um, he's a Bruin and somehow John's name came up and he actually hooked me up with him. So I've got John's number. And so we're going to, we're going to get him on here too. Uh, nice. Get, get the, uh, both the, the Bruin thing going and also the, the uh, Long Beach thing going, like you said, on both ends. So up and a lot of running, it sounds like. So <laughs> when it, when it came to your training with your, your coaches, both in, in high school and long jump, what was it that you did and what do you think was, is the most effective thing if you were going to start training long jumpers, let's say, which you may do. You were telling me w- with your new teaching job, if you end up coaching and you start coaching long jumpers, what are you going to do? Um, I would say for myself, it was strength. Um, I wasn't a big, you know, wasn't a big kid, uh, still not a huge individual, but um, getting that strength in the weight room and doing a lot of, um, I would say like, um, like box jumping, um, um, a lot of strength, speed squats, different things like that, that work on that strength, that explosion. Because one thing a lot of people fail to realize is, you know, being a track athlete, it's not all about weight, 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 weight. It's about how fast you can move that weight. You know what I mean? Um, To keep that explosion as that athlete, especially for our jumpers, any type of jumping, you want that explosion to stay there. And so I credit our use of our weight room, Don Norfolk um, as well, once again, being inside the weight room um, and, and my long jump coach at the time as well. Um, just putting that um, idea in my head that it's not about the weight. It's about the reps that you get done um, and doing each rep, um, you know, like it's your first one, you know what right. I mean? As fresh as you are with that first rep, I want your last rep to be that same way. So taking interval trainings, different things like that in the weight room, and then working a lot of technique. Um, I think everybody thinks that the easiest thing is just to get out there and go jump. And which it is, if you're extremely naturally talented, yeah, you can jump far. But when you start to add that technique to it, it gains inches into those, you know, into that sand pit, whether it's triple long, high jump, all of that. You know what I mean? That technique starts to play a vital role 
as you get up there in competition, as you get up there in meets later in the year, that early season training that you do, that strength training that I like to talk about, whether even running heels and different things is yeah. very important and very vital um, to the ending portion of your year when you're trying to go to state, go to, you know, CIF state and, you know, whether you go, continue on to do any like um, um, junior Olympics, anything like that, whatever it may be late yeah. in the year. Um, you definitely need that strength to rely on. Natural talent will always be there, but that work ethic, that ability to put in that extra work early in the season, I definitely say is what helped myself um, and would definitely help so many others if they continue to focus on it. <clears throat> um, so when, when we're talking about the, the weights of the explosion now, were, were your coaches big into, for instance, with squats, did you go full squats all the way to the ground or were you doing more like half and quarter squats? Yeah, you know, more explosive speed. Yeah, more uh, half squats. Like I said, more maybe speed squats is what uh, Coach Norfolk referred to them as. You put a lighter amount of weight on the bar, something that you know you could ridiculously um, um, lift easily. But what you're doing is a lot of high volume reps and um, creating that explosion, creating that quick twitch, you know what I'm saying, if you will, um, that people are looking for. Um, you know, anytime you're running down the runway, it's not necessarily always about speed, but at least you want that power. You know, you got your power jumpers, you got your speed guys that just fly through the air. Um, I was like a, a nice little combination of both. I had the power, had some really strong legs, but also the speed. So that combination of both of those elements, um, doing the speed, uh, speed um, um, squats uh, definitely helped uh, with that explosion and made my legs so much stronger um once we got to the end of the year like i said or even early in the year um gave me that competitive advantage that we were looking for um from meet to meet right um how about um cleans did you guys do uh, hang cleans and then any deadlifts uh lunges step ups anything like that yep so you know you have, you have the plyo boxes to where you do jumps um I, that's one of my favorite things to do um sometimes we would jump up there with a weight you know what i'm saying maybe like yeah. a 10 20 pound weight in your hands, get up there, jump for that explosion um, and then tear your way down. You know what I'm saying? Walk down the steps, stepping yeah. ladder, then go back, jump to the next one. Uh, we did lunges uh, with weight. We did lunges without weight um, just to get that, get those muscles that you would constantly be using um, in rhythm with the rest of your, you know, just in rhythm with the rest of your body, your form, everything, Absolutely. just to keep you, um, like we say, well-rounded. Um, we didn't focus too much on dead lifting and cleaning as much, you know, because like I said, as a track athlete, most of the stuff is lower body, but you know, we did a little bench press, a few things like that, that would um, bring the arms along, but most of it was focused on legs um, and pretty much, you know, a lot of plyometrics, yeah. I would definitely say to keep the body lean, limber, you know what I'm saying? Doing the motions that explosions that you would normally run into when you're actually on the track competing that day. Um, one thing I can say about Don Norford, he tried to symbolize a lot of the things we would be doing on the track in the weight room and in practice, whether, you know, we were running, breaking down events, you know, into smaller portions. So you could focus on those sections of that event. Um, and, and the same thing can be said for, like I said, long jumping, um, uh, Pruitt uh, was my coach's name. I can't remember his first name, but uh, Pruitt was his last name. Uh, but he would have us doing um, jumps like onto the high jump mat, you know what I'm saying? Hang techniques, different things like that, working on the core. Another thing I would say that we focused on was our core. Um, if we didn't do anything in a day, we definitely worked on some core strength because, you know, as a long jumper, high jumper, anything, that core strength, being able to hold those legs, those poses, those different things that you need to gain that 
um, yeah. soaring through the air or getting up over that bar or triple jump, you know, second, third phase into yeah. the pit. A lot of those are core um, yeah. um, areas that you need to work to maintain that and to get the max out of every jump that you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that any part of the through there from your hips up to your shoulders yep. thing collapses as you're applying the power, you know, nothing's any good. You watch that happen all the time where, you know, high jumpers just kind of all of a sudden they just flop right towards the bar and you're like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta keep that rigid. You know, you gotta yeah. straight up. So I absolutely. Um, well, Hey, on the other side of the, of the ledger now you, you went high school, you went to the state meet in the long jump and then you became what, what I would have to think is a rarity at, at uh, UCLA. I know that there have been some who have done both football and track, but not many. Now, I know the, the current head coach, uh, Avery, used to be uh, both a football player and a high jumper. It was like a 7-2 high jumper, and he played some ball. But I know it doesn't always go easily. And does it, does it depend on the, the guy at the top, your, your head coach? Is, you know, was he more willing than some to, to let you do both sports? So funny story. Um, when I was coming out and I was being recruited, one of the pitches to get me to come, you know what I'm saying, and kind of convinced me was the fact that they would let me run track as well. Nice. Um, but unfortunately, when I got to UCLA, uh, things changed. Um, and as we know, football takes precedence over pretty much most other sports, um, unfortunately. <laughs> and so when I got there and I was trying to get over to the track, um, my football coaches made it kind of like, well, we really want you to start and we want you to be here for spring ball and we want you to be here for this. So they sold me a good story about getting in there and, you know, um, being able to do both. But when it really came down to it, um, unfortunately, my coaches didn't have the same feeling that I did that track and football go hand in hand. They wanted to see me on the football field more. Um, so unfortunately, I forego uh, the opportunity to run track at UCLA. I never actually got the opportunity. Even uh, Mike Powell, when he became the coach um, for the jumpers there, he tried everything that he could to get me really? um, onto the track. But um, my football coaches just wouldn't really relent um, to it. Um, you know, I had a good, I had a successful career in football, but I definitely think that had I been able to run track all four years as well, it would have maintained my speed, the level of speed that I came into UCLA with, right. I would have kept that speed. You know, it didn't dip too much. I still end up leaving UCLA running about a four, five, Oh, four, four, nine. Um, and my first pro day, um, ended up bettering that time as I got more training and, and ran an additional pro days. But, um, I definitely wish I had the opportunity to do it all four years because I definitely do believe that it would have given me more or maintained my speed that I had come to UCLA with from doing track my entire life and football at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I, if I can encourage anybody listening, I would definitely say if you do track, maintain that, you know, make that become part of your letter of, um, uh, um, you know, your signing letter when you sign, right. Right. make them put that in there that you can run track and it's not, um, you know, just talk. Because, yeah. you know, we understand yourself and myself that, you know, football and track go hand in hand. There's not one element of football that can't be helped by track. Um, yeah. The speed, the technique, the strength, the endurance, everything that you gain and earn from that track and field is directly applied to football and yeah. just makes you a better overall athlete. Um, yeah. So I encourage everyone, they're hand in hand. I don't, I don't think of track without football and I don't think of football without track. 
when I have athletes who tell me that they do both. <clears throat> and there's a, such a long legacy to it. it. One of the things that really annoys me in the last 40 years of athletics since high school has been the proliferation of these coaches that are like they're little Hitlers inside their own disciplines where they're like, mm -hmm. okay, if you're on the football team, your football year all year round. You know, right. talk about old school, you know, back in my day, in quotes, right? Um, we did every sport like the way kids do now. You know, you, you weren't in your sport all year round. You, you played whatever was in season. You know, if it was Correct. football, people were down at the park playing two-hand touch or playing flag football, or they were already playing tackle football somewhere else. And they waited till football was over. And then you'd go to basketball or whatever. And then, you know, and it would just go around the clock. It was all seasonal. And then I remember even when I was at Milliken, we had that was already starting to rear its head because we had so many talented athletes at Milliken that could play football and basketball. And right. The basketball coach was like, Hey, if you're not at my, you know, early workouts, you know, if you're not here at eight o'clock in the morning and doing this or seven 30 or whatever they were doing, I think they, they got up really early before school. No, school starts at eight. So maybe it was like seven o'clock practice. And he's telling the football players, they got to be at, at those during the fall. And I'm like, the football players are like, Dude, I already got practice. I'm at practice, you know, in the <laughs> afternoons and everything. And and these were back in the days where you were cracking heads, you know, all four days of the week. You know, maybe you're doing special teams on Thursday is a little bit lighter. Right. You know, you probably hit Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday during a, a regular week. And then, you know, if it's in the summer during Hell Week, that's crazy. And then you're supposed to go to his early morning basketball workout. And these guys are like, dude, I'm not. I'm not into that. I mean, I love basketball, but I'm not going to do that. You know, so then, then they wouldn't play because this was, was like, you're just not going to play because you didn't, you weren't part of my system. And I, I remember thinking, I go, you know, those basketball teams at Milliken should have been a lot better, but the coach is just cutting off his nose despite his face saying, I don't want these guys to play because they're football players, you know? And I'm just like going, these are some of the best athletes I've seen. And we had a guy named uh, Bruce Williams, who was a, a wide receiver on the football team. And I was there as a sophomore in 1980 and won mm -hmm. CIF that year. And he, this guy was just jacked. He was one of the biggest wide receivers I've ever seen. He would do one arm push-ups in the locker room and, you know, just like, and everybody was just in awe of this guy as an athlete, you know, as a wide yeah. receiver, he was great. And, you know, the coach was like, well, you weren't here at all our workouts. So even if you want to be on the team, you're not going to start. And he's like going, it just didn't make any sense to me. I'd be, I'd be shaking my head going, dude, you know, your, your program's impressive and everything, but, uh, you know, so it's just funny how that all, it all comes around. But you, you think about all the great athletes now, we're talking about um, guys that you were talking about. I don't know if our, our Mercedes Lewis did track and field, but like um, Maurice Jones-Drew was a sprinter, you know. Yes. Uh, you know, Reggie Bush. And they're playing, yes. you know, roughly around the same time. I hear stories about them in high school. And, you know, there's, there's thousands of football players across the face of this nation that did track and field still to this day, you know. That are oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Herschel Walker was a great sprinter at Georgia. Um, yes. You know, Bo Jackson. You yes. Know, <laughs> Andrew Craig of the 49ers ran the high hurdles at Nebraska. Was yes, he did. Athlete, you know, and the – it's just littered with that. Russ Francis, who played for the 1984 49ers, won a Super Bowl, was still up on the wall at Oregon from throwing the javelin like 250 in high school. <laughs> right. There he is, at, you know, in, in Tracktown Pizza in, in Oregon. Picture of Russ Francis on the wall, you know. So 
you're like, these guys are unbelievable athletes. And yet these coaches are like, oh, now that you're here, like you said, you know, now you're railroaded into being football. <laughs> a football only athlete when in my entire life, I've done yeah. both of them successfully and at a high clip. You know, it'd be different if I was just like, oh, well, I run track sometimes and football is my main sport. No, like I was actually extremely competitive in track and football. So for yeah. me, it just seemed like second nature because like you mentioned, Reggie Bush, Maurice Jones, Drew, who, you know, I went to school with Maurice and competed against Reggie um, at SC and in high school. Uh, Reggie went to Helix. We ran against them in the state meet. We ended up beating them. We ran against Maurice and them at, you know, several other um, um, uh, meets outside. Yeah, like other competitions and other uh, invitationals outside of that, you know, Mount Sac, other places. Right. Um, and, you know, seeing them on the track, you know, just let you know that, you know, top notch football players. Yeah run track this is what they do you know what i'm saying that's yeah. part of the aura you don't you don't do one without the other there's no way yeah. you know reggie bush obviously he didn't run track when he got to sc you know what i'm saying focus more so football but right. his entire life had been track you know oriented you know what i'm saying so um i just think it's important and it's imperative for coaches to understand like you said um don't treat these athletes like they're one-dimensional treat these athletes like they're well-rounded and yeah. If you're a great athlete, you don't need to be here for spring football. You know what I'm saying? If right. you're doing something that's keeping your endurance, keeping your athleticism, keep challenging you in the way that, you know, say you would want to see as a coach, you know, um, having you out there on the track and field doesn't mean that it's taking anything away from your football game. Plays are plays. X's and O's will always be X's and O's. Yep. But that talent that you bring back to the football field after doing a season of track it's unmatched. Like yeah. I, I could always remember um, when, you know, high school, especially um, after doing track, maybe taking two weeks off and then getting back to football. And even that two weeks that I took off, my endurance level was 10 times better than most of our players who had just been doing football the whole off season, right. because, you know, track, like I've said, track is probably the only sport to where one, it's a team sport, but it's mostly focused individually. A lot of what you do. And then two, that you do 10 times the amount of work, for the results that you get on a Saturday or a Sunday when you're running, you know what I'm saying? You run so many 400s in practice, so many 400s, so many 400s for a 47 second race on a Saturday. You know what I mean? Like you put in extra the amount of work and to, for your reward on Saturday, but it puts you in such an amazing shape and ability uh, that I just, I just don't understand coaches who don't support that. You know, it'd be different if my athlete was just sitting around doing nothing all summer and wasn't at spring ball. But if you're going to do track, I, I don't even worry about you, especially if I know the track coach and he, we have a good track program, then right. yeah, I want you out there. Now, if we just got some Joe Schmo out there taking the siphon check, then yeah. no, I would like right. to see you in, in spring ball. But for us, we had a Don Norford, you know what I'm saying? And so, like I said, once again, our, our endurance, our strength, my conditioning was always unmatched when I came back to football. So yeah. it's, it just goes without question, without saying that they go hand in hand and people need to focus on that coaches athletes alike and continue to push that push that bar higher and higher for you know not every sport complements every sport but track pretty much complements everything i don't think there's one sport that track doesn't help <clears throat> i keep thinking you know again the, the 83 niners and i think he played on i'm pretty sure he played on that team also was uh ronaldo nehemiah who was one of mm -hmm. the who was a world record holder at that time in, correct in the high hurdles and he became a 49er because Number one, back then and, and still to this day, especially here in the U.S., you can be a top track athlete 
and really not make a whole lot of money. Like you, yeah, people that they're getting endorsements. Like I, I love seeing um, Allison Felix getting commercials and all that. I mean, she's been to like four Olympic games now, but really you don't see those commercials until the Olympics come around on those years. All the other times, it's really difficult to get endorsement contracts and all that for, you know, Carl Lewis back in the day, even, even him as great as he was winning four gold medals, unless you really knew track and field, it was still hard for Carl Lewis to, to be a name as opposed to a football player, basketball player, baseball player, just because Correct. so many people don't watch. Everything's still driven by the almighty dollar and the almighty advertisement dollar, which is tied to who's watching your sport. And when your sport's not on TV, except for once every four years. Right. I mean, there's nothing on TV. They show the, the NC2As on like a two-week delay. Right? You'll see it. It's like, this happened two weeks ago in Oregon. And you're watching this meet. And then, I mean, you had to really work to find the Olympic trials this year. You know, you had to know where they were and go look for them. So it's like, it's just, it's just harder. But I, I like what you're saying, too, about um, having both. And... You know, the one thing that I think is, is misleading to a lot of athletes and, you know, there's a lot of people capitalizing on it is let's take AAU basketball, for instance, you know, you're playing mm -hmm. all these junior leagues that are these run and gun and fun leagues and they want to get these kids exposure and, you know, give me $200 a month and I'm going to get your kid out there and we're going to run up the score on these guys and, and your kid's going to get noticed and, and then he's going to go to a big school. And then of course, with the big school, now he's going to become a pro and blah, blah, blah. Now we both know those numbers are so bad you know, overall, your chances of going from the high school level just to a four-year college level are pretty bad. And then once you've done that, you know, an athlete like yourself with a high pedigree in both football and, and track, you know, and you had your, your shot in the pros and it didn't quite happen for you. you right. Know? And, and that sucks. And there's, there's thousands more like you, <laughs> right? Every, Absolutely. Like every year or so there's got to be, because there's all these people that really, really want to play. And, one thing I think is that the level between playing and not playing is, is as thin as some coach just doesn't like you as much as he likes another guy. Correct. You see it all the time, right? Somebody gets hurt and they call up this guy. I mean, it happens in the pros every year. They call up these guys that are like, where did they get this guy? He was never drafted. This guy hangs around camps every year. He comes in and all of a sudden, you know, three cornerbacks are hurt and they're like, uh, never heard of this guy, but he can play corner. So let's shove him in there. <laughs> and there he is playing at a big game. But you know, the level is surprisingly high just because there's so many good athletes like yourself that are just, just right there, you know, just almost, and it, it didn't quite happen. So what happens then, you know? And so I, interestingly enough, uh, I'm interested in, in your viewpoints on that. Now, all these things happened with you. What did you have as your plan as you were going through UCLA? Because I'm sure you had that idea of, of making it into the pros. But what was yeah. the plan in case that didn't happen? Um, I, with this, I credit my father and family. Um, they always told me to have a plan B. You can have a plan A all you want to, um, you know, just like a fighter. You go into a fight and you got a plan A, you get hit in the mouth, and now <laughs> it's time to go to plan B, C, and every other one, you know. <laughs> so, and that's essentially what happens to a lot of athletes. Um, I talk about this quite often that I think the preparation for athletes needs to be better. Um, we can't just focus on the sport because I think there's there, NCAA does a commercial um, that I believe it's I could be off with the numbers, but there's over 20,000 athletes in the NCAA and just about all of them will be going pro in something other than their sport. And right. that's the reality of it. There's a very small percentage of 
us athletes that actually go professional. We see the big names, you see those people and even the ones that kind of make it onto the team and eventually work their way in there. Yeah, those are great stories. Those are good things. But majority of these athletes will be doing something else other than that sport. So the preparation in that needs to be matched. It needs to be understood and met. So these athletes are leaving these schools with opportunities and um, having knowledge and having understanding of the working world, you know, and how it is because so many of them get out there and they haven't had a job like myself. My first job didn't come until 2012 when I was 20 something years old Yeah, because I had done sports at a high clip for so long. And when I was at UCLA, the focus was sports, 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 sports. You couldn't get an internship. You couldn't do anything. And thank God for the NIL coming name, image, and likeness. Now people can you know, recoup some of the funds that these colleges have been making for years on their likeness. You know what I'm saying? So I I love the fact that they can do that now. I wish that was there for us because then it allows you opportunities in business and other things that you probably wouldn't have gotten before. So Jersey money alone, right? They were, they had to be selling some of your guys numbered jerseys those years, right? There had to be hands down. I've seen so many number three jerseys my years and post years and everybody else that wore the number three that it's ridiculous you know what i'm saying you yeah. see the number one jerseys you see the the five the, the fours the threes all of the yeah. numbers that are out there that these kids are wearing i know who that is if you go to ucla you're in there right now i know what number is what number you know what i mean i know who that represents whether it has a name on the jersey or not right. so the fact that these kids now can recoup some of that income as well as you know get internships and other things like that yeah. i still think it needs to be more because um, like I say, what's to stop me from going to spring practice and then from there, after I finish class, going to do an internship for maybe two, three hours to where it gains me valuable experience. Yes. Given the fact that more than likely I won't be going pro in this sport. Right. You know what I'm saying? For most of these athletes. And so, like I said, back to, you know, I credit my father for always pushing me and making me realize, like, what is your plan B, son? What is your plan B? just in case you get hurt, just in case it just doesn't work out, just in case a coach doesn't like you, you know what I mean? And won't put you out there and won't promote you. What is your plan B? My plan B started off by going to UCLA because I knew it was a great school. The education meant something. And when you see that come across on a degree, UCLA means something. You know what I mean? I don't care where you are in the country, in the world. That's an international education that people recognize. So that started my plan B by attending UCLA. That was one of my major choices. Um, And then from there, once uh, the opportunity to play professional sports fizzled out. I relied on my education um, and turned to educating other students. You know what I'm saying? I got into education and then I went on to become a teacher. Um, and so to where I could fall back on something, I'm always going to have my love for sports. I'm always going to have that idea that, you know, I could play right now. Yeah. But in the reality, you, you have to do something that's going to make you money, fit you into the regular working world and the regular way of society really works. The athlete is not the way society really works. You know what I mean? Making millions of dollars to play a sport, that's that's glorified. That's appreciated. But the normal way life really works is a nine to five job in most cases or a job that, you know, you have to work um, and gain experience on over time. Um, And so if I can give one piece of advice is that you should always have a plan B. You may not want to look at it as your plan B, and that's perfectly okay. but you cannot go into anything with one idea and that it's going to work this way. And this is the only way or the only thing that I'm thinking about, because when it doesn't happen, then you're going to be so far behind the eight ball that you're playing catch up for the rest of, you know, the next five, six years until you get on the same playing field as other people. And now they're five, six years ahead of where you currently are now. So it's just, 
it's unfortunate um, that, you know, they put so much pressure on these college athletes um, to play the sport, but don't think about them and how they're going to, what's really going to happen to them after they leave the school. You've made your millions off of me. Now it's like, well, have a good one. Yeah, you could come back for some alumni games and some different right. things, but we yeah. really don't have anything else for you. Um, so I definitely think it's important. Uh, you know, I was even um, wondering, like, you know, how you could start like an internship program or different things like that with these schools and stuff to yeah. where, you know, you take some of these athletes, whether it's alumni who own businesses and different things and give these kids internships because that shouldn't be illegal because yeah. I'm making a few dollars um, working, actually putting in right. effort. That shouldn't be that shouldn't go against my eligibility, compliance or anything like that, because I'm bettering myself for my future and, you know, everything beyond. So, yeah, I'm, I find that that whole thing interesting now, too, because I've just recently started uh, looking back into, you know, coaching track and field at, at even the junior college level. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I started talking with some of these coaches and they're they are worried about recruiting and recruiting violations and NC2A and this and that. And I, I remember thinking, isn't the NC2A busy enough? You know, I mean, what, what do they, you know, care if you're talking to some junior college, you know, possible kid who's at the high school level and, and you and I both know those numbers are abysmal. So many people, you know, their senior year, you know, league finals, their senior year is the last time they do anything athletic for another 20 years. Right. You know, they may yeah. jog around on the weekends and, and join a sports league here or there, but they're pretty much done. And, you know, there's a, a very small, you know, because a lot of those kids, the ones that are going to go on, get snatched up by the four-year schools. So it's yeah. even less left, you know, for the JCs. And it's like, hey, you know, if I call a kid first, if he calls me first, who really cares? You know, I, I'm not getting a kid to a junior college level with the lure of a six-figure paycheck no, and, you know, you're going to be on TV, blah, blah, blah. This is a junior college. It's a nice facility. They're going to get great coaching and a, and a, a chance to improve and maybe go on to a four-year school and maybe they won't, you know? Right. So right. I'm just, I, I get blown away by that, but I, I agree with you. I think this new thing with uh, the sharing of revenue, like you're talking about, it's a multi-billion to trillion dollar industry football alone. But then you look at basketball, um, I don't know if you heard this story. This is just a quick aside that um, my wife was telling me the NC2A was investigated and kind of reprimanded a little bit for the way that they treated, again, the women compared to the men in the basketball. Like the NC2A tournament yeah, they just had an equity. is huge, mm -hmm. right? And, and the women tournament is just kind of like an afterthought. And it was like that, that thing that happened with the, you know, the, the gals when they had them you know, show up at, I guess it was at the Olympic trials or at, at the place that they were training the Olympics. And the guys had this lavish weight room and the girls had like a, a couple of dumbbells and a, right, right. <laughs> a stretchy ball or something. And, you know, one mirror on the wall or something. It was just like, okay, wait, you know, how come this isn't, isn't equally, you know, set up and you know, they're going to, they're making money at every one of the, the higher level sports, you know, from, Absolutely. especially in an Olympic year where they, they may kick into something you're going to see on TV, like, um, you know, us softball, um, soccer, both men's and women's pretty good, you know, and for some of these sports, that rare shot where you actually see water polo and stuff like that on the screen, yeah. even though it's not big money. But, uh, I like this idea of the athlete, you know, a not losing their eligibility by being paid, like you're saying, and B, being paid because you're making, you know, 
millions of dollars on their their stuff from advertising to using their names and their jerseys and everything that we just talked about so i think that's it's long overdue um i can't remember we're somewhere back east was it duke duke university somebody stood up it's been like two or three years but somebody sued the nc2a over the right to get paid and it's kind of been this slow ball rolling through the courts and all that but they finally said you know what, there's no reason why these guys can't be paid and still be athletes now. What do you I think? I think it was a – go ahead. I think it was a Bruin. Yeah. I think it was O'Bannon uh, who kind of started that, that that trend initially of, like, you know, that image and likeness idea right. that there's no way the NCAA executives are sitting around making million-dollar salaries a year and these athletes can't afford a sandwich at night. These athletes – can't go put gas in their car. They can't right. go out on a date with a young lady or a young man. You know what I mean? Right. Because I have to be so concerned about where I get money from, who I take food from, who I get these simple event. I'm not even going to call them advantages. These simple gifts or these simple treasures from just yeah. to survive that night. You know, like I know, you know, 12 o'clock on UCLA's campus, everything is shut down. <laughs> I don't have any money in my pocket. I can't eat. You know what I mean? What? Like, why don't I have any money in my pocket? That scholarship doesn't pay for food all around it pays for the three meals during that time that everything's open right and so i often tell people that it's crazy that the ncaa executives can sit around and make simple decisions and make millions and millions of dollars when the athletes are the one putting the blood sweat and tears out there on the field for their product and the ncaa makes almost just as much money as the nfl but yet the right. nfl pays their players the ncaa is constantly finding ways to keep money out of students pockets right now and and, and let me make it very clear I do not think uh, college athletes should get paid to play, but they should recoup funds for their image and their likeness and everything else that we have gotten to the point of. That yeah. makes sense to me. No, you shouldn't get a paycheck to pay because it's still amateurism. So we want to keep some you know, degree of separation from there. You know what I'm saying? You're not playing a professional sport yet. This isn't your only focus. You still got to go to school, do other things. There's other things that are going on. So you're an amateur athlete. But even being an amateur athlete, why is the Pac-12 commissioner making $10 million a year to make a couple of decisions from where, who do you really come to see when you go watch Pac-12 game? <laughs> are you there to see the commissioner? Or are you there to see that number one quarterback that might be drafted or that great receiver or running back, D lineman, you know, I can go on down the line. And even if we go to track and field in other sports, um, are we here to see the coach? You know, no, we're not. Are we here to see the Pac-12 commissioner for that? No, I'm here to see that. No, 27 foot long jumper. I'm here to see that yeah. six foot 11, you know what I'm saying? High jumper, seven right. foot two high jumper. Those are the people that are, that bring the butts to the stands, but yep. yet they don't get any of that financial kickback um, that these institutions have. And so it's just, it's, it's beyond due. It's, I'm glad it's here. And I hope they just clean it up to allow it to be, because we know the top-notch athlete, the, the starter, the Division One starter at a Pac-5 school, it's going to be easy for them to get NIL deals. But what about the fourth-string individual that's on the roster? What about the, you know what I'm saying, the individual who does well? Mm -hmm. it, it needs to be all-encompassing. Everybody needs to find a way to get some from this NIL um, approval that they've given as opposed to just the top-notch athletes. I heard a story um, from Nick Saban saying that Bryce Young, who hasn't even started a game, hasn't played a down yet at Alabama, has already almost six figures in NIL deals. Right. Like what? Hmm. Where, where, what, what about my third string quarterback? Wait, does right. he have any, does he, you know what I'm saying? So they need to find a way to make it all encompassing. So all athletes 
benefit from their name image like this because if you're on scholarship at a major university whether you're the starter or the third string there's revenue to be had even if it's smaller companies you know what i'm saying something to keep you going get you through sure. to where you're not struggling struggling from pillar to post so but yeah I, I definitely like this new trend that we're working towards and i think it's putting more emphasis on the athlete and not the people who are behind the scenes because the people who are behind the scenes are not who millions and millions watch on tv when you watch a national championship game i'm not worried about the big 12 or the pac-12 commissioner or the sec commissioner you know or said or even the ncaa commissioner i could care less who you are honestly you know what i mean so right put put it put the money where it belongs in these athletes pockets when it's the right way and when it's about their name image and likeness um and i support that all day <clears throat> absolutely um well we already went through i mean they they stripped uh uh, a Rose Bowl and a uh, Heisman Trophy from Reggie Bush and the, the hated Trojans, you know, for the, the same stuff <laughs> you're talking about where it's like, you know, you think back, you go, now, I don't know what the deal was. I don't know what Reggie was driving. You know, I don't know what was going on there at the campus. Right. You know, whether they were paying him under the table also, you know, or whether it was just the relatives, you know, there, I, I suspect there was some of that and maybe the, the person that was doing it was, you know, here's some money, just like you're saying, to be able to do stuff while you're in college, you don't, you can't go work. I'm sure he was working hard in the weight room and going to all his practices and everything. And, you know, hopefully going to class and not having somebody else take your classes and all that. We've seen all of those scams, right? So there's like, yeah, we've seen it all. We've seen all of that, but it's like, I keep thinking, you know, what you're saying too, you know, here's this kid with a hundred thousand dollars, hasn't played it down yet. And you keep thinking like, like you're saying, what about that second string O lineman or the, the backup left tackle, you know, the left tackle protecting the quarterback's blind side, how much is he getting? And if he's not getting anything, is he going to start throwing some lookout blocks every once in a while? <laughs> Just like, right. Yeah. I didn't, right. I didn't see that guy, man. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> Just, I don't know what happened. I know I'm supposed to pick up the outside guy. I just didn't see him. So, you know. And I'm an understander that not everybody's going to get the same. You know what I mean? Fairness doesn't mean everybody gets the same. Fairness means everybody gets what they deserve or what they need. And so I'm not saying that the third string lineman should get 100000 like Bryce Young because Bryce Young's a bigger name. So he should still – he's going to get more. That's fine. That's what happens. That's why you have first-round picks and undrafted free agents. You know what I mean? At the end of the day. But yeah. – an undrafted free agent still in the league and NFL still gets almost a half a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Whereas that number one draft pick. Yeah. He just walked out with 10, 11 million, but he earned that. I'm not saying he needs to be sad for the undrafted free agent, but at the same time, that undrafted free agent is still going to get a paycheck because you're doing something that's, um, you know, rewarding or, or, or uh, worthy, excuse me, of getting a paycheck. And that's the same thing and same idea that I'm coming with when I think of, the third and fourth string athlete that are out there. Um, they're busting their butts too. They're making that number one pick look good in practice. They're giving them the look they need to be that number one pick. So there needs to be deals within the school that are helping all levels of athlete, because we know like you, you touched on it. Female athletes don't get the equity that male athletes do. I don't care if there's the same sport, just like basketball. Lisa Leslie was on, um, I believe it was Bleacher Report yesterday doing an interview where she talked about, I'm on the 58 and 0 women's national team, but yet no one knows that. No one talks about that. We went 58 and 0 for the four or five Olympics that she went through, competing <laughs> all across the world in every country, doing all of these acts and feats. 
but yet we talking about the men losing more than we talking about the women winning. You know what I mean? So that equity needs to not only go within the sport, but across gender, you know, whether it's female or male, they, they both need that respect. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be, Oh, well, the male athlete gets more. Why? Because there's people who love the female games in the events that they do and the things that they do. So they should get just as much exposure, that equity. And like you said, something about the NCAA, they just looked into uh, moving forward that from now on, the basketball games will be played in the same locations. Instead of having the women in a whole other location right. and not getting any exposure, they're going to play in the same locations to where you guarantee them exposure. And I mean, and we bring awareness to their game. Yeah. Like, why not? Like they bust their behinds too, just like male athletes do. Um, and so it's about time they get that recognition as wow. well. I like it. I, I don't know. I'm, this is just a quick aside, but uh, if you're like me, I, I grew up, you know, when I was eight years old, my mom turned on the Olympics. It was 1972 at, at Munich, right? So I remember the hostage thing with the Israeli athletes, unfortunately. Uh, I remember Olga Corbett, this little Russian gal that was all over the place doing this outrageous stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just the, that was this, the first uh, first mega swimmer, Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz. Yeah, I remember that name. Olds, that Olympics. This is 1972. I'm eight years old. And I was watching that like this, just like every night. I was just like, oh, my gosh, there's boxing, there's wrestling, there's, there's all these sports. And I think I became a sports junkie because of, you know, my wife's probably cringing as I'm speaking. But, you know, because of this kind of thing and, and you're just, you know, there's drama in front of you, you know, every day. And I, I love it now because, you know, there are certain sports that I've got exposed to just this time. Uh, I was watching and all of a sudden I see three on three basketball, you know, women and I started mm-hmm. watching the women's three on three basketball. And I got to say, that is a fun game to watch because there's not much going on, but basketball, there's no coach right. court. There's four gals, three of whom can play at any time. It's like, it's like playing in your down at the local gym or whatever, you know, you yeah. the shot, the other team takes it out immediately clears it and it's coming back. And all three of these gals are, are pro basketball players, you know, and very good ones. And there've been some really close games. They ended up winning the gold, but it was like, I was entertained. I was like, this is moving quick. These guys are hitting incredible shots. They're playing hard defense. The way they ref it, they can almost punch them in the mouth before they're going to call a foul. It was like, right. <laughs> it was a rough game in some spots. You're like, you don't get a lot of easy looks. So, um, yeah, I, I like the sound of that, what you're saying, you know, getting the, the women right there with the men. And I'm sure, you know, what's that going to do to the revenue this year? You know, you get to the to the big, you know, the big dance. It's three weeks worth of stuff. Right. And those gyms will be packed. Absolutely. Now, you know what? Every, I don't know if everybody realized, but every one of those little tang- times you see people play it's like a, a four team tournament. You know, you get four teams that come and then they go. Yeah. Two games and then one game, and then they go to the next venue. So, you know, right. the time you're at 64, everybody plays a game, and now you got 32 teams left. You know, your two winners play, and then they're on their way. But that's only three games. You know, and you can Correct. do in one day. You, in one day, you can do the two games if you want, or you could do one of the guys' games and one of the girl games, right, or, or however they're going to do it. But it wouldn't be that difficult, you know, and I could see those tickets being, like, pretty highly valued if you go, you know, they may either clear the arena or just – <laughs> let you sit and watch, you know, two or three basketball games. 
or buy, you know, buy an all-encompassing all ticket. You know, this ticket that you're going to buy, okay, it went from $50 now, now it's $100, but you get three more games that day that you get right. to watch. You don't have to leave the arena. The yeah. men's games are played in the morning. The females' games are played in the afternoon. And you right. stay and watch six games a day. You know what I mean? Whatever the case may be, I know that there's a way to increase viewing for the women's sport. And if that's one of the ways to do it, you know, hey, you know what? You buy these tickets to this game and you get to watch the females games with the TV ratings and everything that's going to come, people will stay around to watch that is what I'm saying. There have been some truly exciting female basketball games and just sports played in general that fans would love to see, but they don't get the exposure. Almost like we talk about with track, you just don't get the exposure. You got to go all the way outside of the country to get the love that you deserve in track period, male or female. But it's that same way for female sports in the States that they don't get that same love. And so we need to figure out a way to get that same love, that same energy, that same uh, desire out there for the female sports um, like we do with the male sports, um, because there's some great athletes out there, as you know, uh, a lot of these uh, female basketball players, especially they play against men all the time yeah. and be balling them up. Some <laughs> of them have been the best women on their block. Yeah. I believe it was Tennessee Shamika Hosclaw that she used to be the best person on the block when she was growing up as a kid and yeah. i'm talking about playing against some nba players and stars right. but she used to ball them all up you know what i mean <laughs> so that type of talent is it doesn't just disappear because oh now well, i got to play professional women's sports no that, that, that's still great talent so that needs to be have the same exposure same credit same awareness right that we give to our men and you know i'm definitely speaking this because you know i have doctors so i want them to understand and realize that they will get that same exposure, you know what I'm saying, at some point in their lives if they choose to do sports um, as well. So that equity word is, it's just, it just, it means so much. And I think it's relevant to today's times and everything that we're dealing with. Um, that, that equity idea, everybody gets that similar or same exposure um, to what they're doing. Right. Well, there, you know, that's, that's a huge thing. And, you know, it's, it seems to me in the, in the country right now, obviously we've got, it just seems like uh, there's so much opportunity to draw lines in the dirt and for people to choose sides, you know, and I, right. I story I go, uh, my wife and I were talking politics just a while back. And what I really liked about um, Biden when he was campaigning against Trump was he just said there was one night on the debate when he said, you know, when I win this election, I'm not going to be the president of the blue states. Right. Exactly. I'm going to be the president of the United States. And I was like, absolutely. You know, I like that. I don't, I don't want us to be divided any more than there's already opportunities to be divided. There's, you know, we've got so many different races and so many different cultures that call America home. And it makes us one of the greatest nation on the, in the world because everybody should get a free chance. So we, we've taken that to its extreme, you know, and anybody that sits there and goes, I'm superior to you because I'm this color and you're that color. I just think back, I go, wait, didn't you get kicked out of your country? Isn't that, isn't that how this, <laughs> country, isn't that this country started? We're like the wretched refuse, you know, to quote right. Murray from stripes. It's like, we're the mutts, you know, everybody came here because we were fleeing religious persecution and this and that. And for us to sit there and go, oh, we're better than you. It's like, no, no, man, come on over. That's what made this country great. You know, and it's like, I mean, we've, we live in a time where, you know, Dat, Dat Nguyen played linebacker at Texas A&M, I think, or Texas, yep. and, and then Texas A&M. in the NFL with the Cowboys, right? Yep. And I'm like, which Nguyen? Dat Nguyen. I remember Dat. <laughs> you know? And that's, 
you think back, you know, 20 years, you'd be, how is that possible? So here's this great opportunity, this melting pot, and so much to learn from other cultures, so many valuable things. And there's, you know, having anybody just going, oh, that's not valuable. You're not valuable. You're a lower level citizen. I'm worth more than you, you know, and I hear that rhetoric mm -hmm. and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, how, how can we still have that going on in, in this country above all others, you know, but it's, I don't know, maybe it's human nature. You know, I, I was talking with somebody else about the, like Croatia and the Serbians, you go, if you look at it, somebody from Croatia and someone from Serbia, they look the same. Right. <laughs> they look exactly the same. So, you know, and they will fight each other to the death, you know, and it's just like, okay, that's crazy. And I was talking with somebody who says they, they almost like punch in a clock and go to war and then punch out. And then it's like, you know, they meet at the bar later and have a beer. But I just, I can't get, I can't wrap my, my, uh, my brain around that one. But, well, listen, um, I'm trying to think is there, we can, we can always edit this out later. Is there anything else we, we should talk about? We talked about um, your training, talked about background. Uh, is there any, anything else on your mind? I, I love to get the UCLA angle in there. I love to get, you know, yeah. football players and track, you know, this started out as, you know, this raised the bar idea just from track and field. But um, I keep thinking, you know, I want to take them bigger. My own sports yeah. stores up that they get. Yeah, you know, I listen to sports radio all day long. So I'm like, I'm always trying to think of, you know, the catchy thing to say or, or who to get in there. Um, what else? You're, uh, we talked about your teaching stuff. Is there anything else that, that you had? I loved, I loved you. We went off into the equality issue with women and everything else. If there's anything else that you can think of that we should talk about. Um. I, you know, can always talk about the state of our, our current Bruins right now. Definitely. Um, I love it. I know. I love that. Um, you know, with the Chip Kelly experiment and everything right now, um, you know, four years ago. Yeah. Four years ago now um, at this point, you know, when that name first came across the board, like I don't think people really understood like how excited UCLA fans were, because when you look across our history, we were the school that always kind of took what was left when it came to coaching. We never really put the money forward, put the dollar forward to go get the coach that everybody, so to speak, wanted or right. everybody thought would be the best coach for several multiple several programs. Right. Um, and so when we took the chance on that, Chip Kelly, and put that money up, you know, let Mora walk, um, paid his buyout, and yeah. then turned around and, and gave Chip Kelly a very handsome, um, I believe it was 21 million over four years or something like that. Just something, something just unheard of in UCLA athletics up until this point. It, it made me realize that we are trying to make that attempt to turn the bar in football as well. And like we are recognized in basketball. Right. Um, and his presence initially, I mean, it was thought to be great, you know, oh my God, we're getting Chip Kelly, the innovator of this, the, right. you know, uh, the, the 61 and seven record at Oregon and, and so many yeah. things. I may be off on my numbers there, but, you know, just an amazing record that he had at Oregon. Yeah. Um, and you're bringing that energy and you're bringing that vibe, that same coach to UCLA to where, yeah, we can use a rejuvenation of, um, of spirit and idea and just new right. thinking. Right. Um, but now we're here and we're at year four and he's won 10 games. And so it's like, is this the same Chip Kelly or is it or have you been masked by the great talent that you had around you already at Oregon? You know what I'm saying? Because when you really think about it, Mike Bellotti, 
I mean, Mike Bellotti brought in most of that talent that Chip Kelly had by yeah. the time he took over. You know what I mean? So that was a and, well-known scene that he walked into. Oh, yeah. what Great team. Great. I mean, it, it was already a weld oil machine with recruiting ties to all over the country and everything. So, I mean, was it really Chip Kelly or was it the athletes that you had that made your scheme look better? Right. You know what I'm saying? Can you really coach? Because the measure to me of a coach is not when you have your best team. It's when you have your worst teams. Yes. What do you do with those worst teams? How do you still have four and five kids get scholarships? Do you still have a winning season? Do you still have when you have your quote unquote worst teams? And so right now, you know, people always give the excuse that, oh, well, you got to give him time to get his guys in there. It's been four years. You have your guys. You have seniors. You have a starting quarterback who's a senior. You have receivers, yeah. linemen, everything across the board that you have is what you wanted, what you recruited, what you brought in. So now this year for me, and I'm sure so like so many others, it's a make or break year. If we don't win at least nine, 10 games, yep. I'm sorry, Chip Kelly, the experiment is no longer relevant and it's time to move on. Um, as much as that name may bring energy and excitement for some people, and I'm sure the kids have great things to say about them at the school, but if for me, it's, it's uh, how you um, grow that talent. When you bring in talent, yeah. it's how do we um, make it better? How does it get better over these four years? Did you come in as a three-star and now you're leaving pretty much like a five-star, you know what I'm saying, with great um, numbers, great stats, you know, looking to get drafted, different things like that, or... Did you come in as a three-star and you kind of maintained the three-star status? You didn't really get any bigger, didn't get any bigger, didn't get any stronger, didn't really provide anything during your time here. I'm not a guy who's so fall in love with the with the star ratings because at the end of the day, Marcus Mariotti was a three-star athlete and we saw he had turned into the number one pick in the draft. Right. It's all how you develop your talent. And right. so far, Chip Kelly's done an okay job of developing that talent. This year is the make or break year and if it doesn't put out results, then in my opinion, and so many others, I feel like it's time to make a change. I don't know who that will be. I'm not sitting here lining up coaching candidates and saying, oh, this should be the guy. But at the end of the day, you have to move on from something if the experiment just isn't working. And if we can't get nine, 10 wins this year, then to me, the experiment isn't working because this is his most experienced, yeah. most well-rounded team that he will have in the four years since he's been here. Yeah. And no offense to San Diego State and Fresno State and other those schools, but we hadn't lost to San Diego State in I don't know how long. I know. And we lose to both of them in, you know, successive years. Yeah. I don't think Chip Kelly's won any preseason games since he's been there. That's yeah. a problem. It's bizarre. Those That's are a problem. I was there on campus. We would just – you weren't even looking at those games. You'd go, you know, San Diego State and, you know, whoever else you played. The, the one – you get three games like that that were automatic wins. And then, it right. was, then we had Nebraska or Oklahoma or someone like that, where we'd be like, okay, we're either going to play a good game here or, or we might get run up a little bit, you know? Correct. Um, yeah. that <laughs> I agree with you. I think uh, that the well-oiled machine and everything else, it's like, man, and it's one thing to be competitive. I think last year, we, even though the record might not have even have been good as the year before or whatever, at least. Can you give me a charger? The Stanford right. game was a better game. You know, we played and it looked like we belonged on the field. I mean, we should have beat Oregon with our backup quarterback. You know, if he doesn't throw that interception at the end of the first half with the backup quarterback yes. on the 50-yard line, he has him Correct. running around behind the line trying to make this play, and he throws up a duck that they run in. I remember watching that going, Chip, just just punt or just 
throw the ball away here. You know, I, I don't, I don't even mind taking the shot, but you know, they got to be well coached enough where you just go, you can't turn the ball over on the last play for a touchdown. So you're like, you know, we've got the talent, but yeah, something's got to, something's got to give. If he doesn't, the only thing I'm thinking is if they don't, and they don't have that year, like you said, he's already put in four years of the five-year contract. So the buyout won't be so expensive as it's been in the past. Well, fortunately, um, after this year, his buyout is a zero. That was part of the clause that right. they negotiated in his contract. So there's a zero buyout after this season. So nice. the incentive is to win so you can gain your next contract. Um, because in reality, you don't win. You see, I can cut ties with you and there is no five, six million, $10 million buyout. You know what I'm saying? That hurts you. $13 million buyout like Mora. You know what I'm saying? That you know, puts a little financial constraint on, you know, some of your resources. Um, but if you win, nobody has a problem bringing you back. So it's just a matter of we need results. To be competitive in every game, yes, that's great. But if in this preseason that we have, if we don't at least go two and one, you know what I'm saying, then it's already not a great thing. Hawaii and Fresno State, we have to beat them. That's just we have to beat them. LSU. If you can make it an extremely competitive game, we lose by one, three points, you know what I'm saying? Don't get blown out. I think everybody will be okay with that. Because, you know, most people um, propose that LSU will be back this year. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. for me, that's a staple game that you want to win. Um, yeah. And that will put you on a path to just, you know, running. Not, I wouldn't say running through the Pac-12 because, you know, the Pac-12 is just ultra competitive right. and so much parity within the Pac-12. But. If you can find a way to win all your preseason games and get you on the road into playing the Stanford, Arizona in our early Pac-12 schedule that we have, then I just think it puts us in a great light um, to be a 9-10 win team. You know, yeah, you may have your your hiccups and your couple of losses or we just play a bad game, turn the ball over. Yeah. Sometimes that happens, you know what I'm saying? But ultimately, a lot of that should be ironed out and smoothed out with the type of talent and the level of experience that we have going into this football season. Like I'm thoroughly excited, but you know, I'm cautiously optimistic as well. <laughs> right. Um, but I think I got one last thing. Um, I was, I was wondering you're, you're a lot closer obviously to the uh, alumni and everything with uh, more of the current football players, the guys that, that I remember bumping into in the, you know, in the weight room, you know, back in the eighties are, are all my age, like way out of there. So um, you being, closer to the, with your ear to the ground. Last year in COVID, I had heard that, um, and I remember reading a couple articles about that there was a, a little of a, a divide between the players and the coaches. Like there was something coming up where um, either DTR or some of the people were talking about, they didn't really feel like Chip had their back or they didn't have their best, uh, you know, interests in, in mind when they were, doing the spring practices or something like that. I remember reading through and it was just like you know, getting stuff out of UCLA is so hard, you know, because everybody plays everything close to the vest. You know, it's like, I can't, it used to be, you could read in the, in the LA times about, you know, UCLA football. Now you got to really look, you know, even on my UCLA app, you got to look for stuff. Right. But I, I remember there being some kind of divide between the players and the coaching staff last year. Was there, you remember anything like that or hearing anything? About yeah, I do remember hearing uh, a little bit about that, a little bit of buzz, um, that there was some type of dissension between, you know, like the desires of Chip Lee, you know what I'm saying, and like practicing and um, how they practice, you know, wanting everybody there, not wanting them like out doing their own working out and stuff. But it's like, you know, during the middle of a pandemic, 
everybody has to learn to adjust. Right. Excuse me. The the greatest strength of a coach, an athlete, anybody is adaptability, right? Right. Last year was unprecedented. Last year was something that we will probably never see again. And obviously 2021 wasn't so much greater, a lot better, a little bit of relief, but 2020 was something that we never experienced. So as a coach, you want to be flexible with your players. You want to give them the ability to know, hey, I'm on your side. It's not just about the X's and O's and the football and the way that I say do it. You know what? We're going to put this workout out. And if you can do it in your location and where you are, get that done. If you can be here at the facility and it makes sense for you to, then cool. Come on in. You know what I mean? But don't limit or pigeonhole people because, oh, it has to be this way for me to feel and trust that you're getting it done. That's where that trust of your players kicks in. That's where your trust of the athletes and the way you built your program kicks in and you give your athletes that autonomy and that understanding that, hey, this is the workout plan. This is the program that we were going to put in place. Whether you're here on campus, back home in Washington or down there in Florida, get that work in, get that workout in, video your workout, send it in to me. There's different ways of showing accountability than you being present in front of me um, and risking your health. Let's be honest. Yeah. Everybody was scared last year. We didn't know what to think. I didn't know whether the person next to me had it or the person right. that I family members or anything. So let alone do I want to be around 110 football players that come from all across the country, <laughs> coaches, families, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They often yeah. always say, yeah, I know you, but I may not know the person that you know. You know what I'm saying? Where were yeah. they? What have they been? They may not even like me. You know what I'm saying? A yeah. friend of yours could be an enemy of mine. You know what I mean? So yeah. things like that especially when you're talking about sickness, COVID spread and disease, right? Come on coaches, you know, get on board with a new way of doing things. And if I, you know, need to put up a zoom and show you that I'm doing my video and doing my workout and doing my sit-ups and my push-ups, yeah. then, you know, I'll send that zoom into you. I'll record it. And then you can have advantage. You can take advantage of being able to right. be um, take advantage of technology. And I think if nothing else, last year taught us that technology, it can be extremely helpful to us. Um, in times of need, you know what I mean? Um, and not just for social media fun and entertainment purposes, but can actually be a resource tool that we can use to keep everybody safe and out of the drama and out of the way, you know, sometimes. So um, thank goodness, whatever dissension was happening, you know, got cleaned up and yeah. it worked out uh, because, you know, everything that I hear about now, the, the, the kids just have so much trust and faith in Chip Kelly right? and respect him. You know, I'm a huge friend of the huge friend of Deshaun Jackson, you know, we went to high school, uh, played against each other at Cal. And, you know, he spoke very lowly of uh, Chip Kelly, but you can understand his point of view because at the time when he was dealing with Chip Kelly in Philadelphia, I mean, he got cut, so many other things got pointed out as this and that. And so I can understand his sentiment towards Chip Kelly. It just wasn't great. And, you yeah. know, I have no quorums with him and I, that's his opinion, you know, but some of these other kids really love and adore Chip Kelly. And so, you know, hopefully he's adapted and changed himself, you know what I'm saying, to meet his players and not my players need to meet me where I am. Right. Because as a coach, you know, every season, every team, every player, every year is totally different from the one before. There's nothing like the next season. There's nothing you can compare it to other than the fact the name on the jersey and my name may still be the head coach. (laughs) Other than that, even a player that I had on last year's team could, could grow and mature into somebody totally different. You know what I'm saying? And I need to coach you in a different way this season. Just because I could coach you this way last year doesn't mean that that same stuff is going to apply. I don't know what's going on with you, you know what I'm saying, to every degree and every turn. So um, just adaptability as a coach is imperative. And it sounds like Chip Kelly is is, is learning that and getting that. Um, Because when you first look at the program, when he first got there, I believe there's something like 53 students have left the program. 
yeah. athletes, and all of that wasn't bad talent. Let's keep it honest. So, yeah, you know, he's clearly had to learn to adapt because more kids are learning are starting to stay and want to be around um, right. than when he first got there. Well, that's a good sign. Awesome. Well, hey, Rodney, I've taken up uh, an hour and a half of your life. I really appreciate uh, you making the time uh, through being a dad and, and your time off in the summer before you got to get back to work. Um, we're both eyeballing that starting day of school, I'm sure. I'm just like, yeah. oh, I don't want to go back. Um, I'm like this every summer. <laughs> Eventually, you end up going back. But um, I, I really appreciate your time. We talked football. We talked track. We talked training. And uh, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about uh, you and me and your dad playing some golf or doing something like yeah, that. Hey. So, uh, let's let's get that taken care of one of these times soon. And uh, but I, I really thank you for coming on. Thanks for sharing your experiences. That, uh, we didn't even get to talk any particular games or whatever. So I reserve the right to get you back on here again another time. Maybe we'll have a, a check in here after uh, those four preseason games, see how we're doing with football and uh, and get you back. Absolutely. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Glad I could, uh, you know, offer some insight and some, and some knowledge into, you know, my head and into the program and different things. Um, and I'd be more than welcome to appear again on any other uh, shows or future shows that you have. So once awesome. again, thanks for having me. All right. Once again, ladies and gentlemen out there in podcast land, that was Rodney Van Jr., uh, former cornerback uh, at UCLA, number three. Uh, long jumper and 400 meter runner, 100, 200, did lots of different things in, in high school. And uh, he graciously shared his time with us and his insights. And um, we're very thankful and we'll see him here again soon. All right. Thanks, Rodney. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. All right.